Well, folks, I see that the hour has come and gone, so I think we will, we will commence. As we do this study, there's going to be a lot of times where I have uh, the psalm written on the screen so that you will not need books, and we can all look at the same thing at the same time. Uh, I've tried to make the print as big as is practical, but if you have trouble seeing, uh, there are some seats closer to the front that you, you, can, you can try out. So as we uh, begin, let us pray. Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I cry to you when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life, his years as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth, which may preserve him. So I will sing praise to your name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. Amen. Okay, so here we go. Six weeks on the Psalms. All right, so the, the Hebrew word for the psalms is the word tehillim, which simply means praises. And as you probably know, the I-M is the plural ending in German. In German. I was just at a German class today. Uh, in Hebrew. Uh, for instance, uh, you and I are goyim. I personally am a goy. That is a heathen, a non-Jew. Uh, in the Bible, often when uh, the psalmist is talking about the nations, he's, the, the word that's used is often goyim, the, the non-Jews along the way. So I am is a plural ending. So in Hebrew, the book is simply called Praises. And by the way, as usual, I would consider it a great delight if you would interrupt with as many questions and uh, insights as possible. You know, we're dealing with poetry. And as often the case, poetry can get translated and interpreted in different ways. So um, I, I look forward to the enrichment that we can give each other. There is many times not just one way to look at these psalms. Well, the Greek, we just looked at the Hebrew word. The Greek term is psalmoi. And right away we learn something important because the word psalmoi in Greek means to rub or to touch the surface, or to pluck. So when you think of plucking in the Psalms, you automatically think of a, a harp or a psaltery or something like that. Yeah. So here's our first insight. In the Hebrew concept of these, uh, in the very word that they use as the title of them, you see this connection with instruments as well as the singing of the Psalms. Uh, as I say, uh, also on this page, in the ancient Greek Near Eastern mindset, 
Poetry and music are closely related. So much so that whenever you read anywhere in scripture uh, in something that appears to be poetry, you can count on it that they would have sung that. Uh, so keep that in mind too. It, it gives us uh, insights into what is uh, at its very heartbeat, the nature of the Psalms, this connection. Uh, this musical connection, not just with word, but with instruments. So, as far as we know, ancient Hebrew poetry was always sung, and apparently with instrumental accompaniment as well. Well, how do we know that? Well, history tells us that, but the Bible gives us some insights into this as well. Here's a passage from 1 Samuel chapter 10. Samuel, the prophet, is speaking to Saul who has just, uh, or is about to be chosen uh, as the first king of Israel. And Samuel says to Saul, as you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Verse 9. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met them. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And what are the prophets doing? They're prophesying under uh, inspiration. They're in kind of a can't think of the word right now, not, in, not intoxicated, but what's, what's the a good trance. word for it? Kind of like a trance uh, is even a better word. I can't think ecstatic. of it right now. Ecstasy. Yeah, thank you. They're in an ecstatic state when they're prophesying. So the Spirit of God comes upon them, and they burst forth into these, uh, the, these prophecies. But they don't do it without musicians. Apparently, these... Uh, the prophets moved in groups from place to place, and it was essential for them, apparently, to have musicians, instrumentalists, going with them. And that's what we see here in this verse. Now, you can tell in the Bible when there, are, uh, when there is uh, poetry going on and when there isn't. And uh, you'll, you'll notice that, uh, I'm not expecting you to read this, but I want you to look at the format. You see in the very top two lines and then down here at the bottom, it's written in, in simple prose style. But then all the way through here and then again all the way through there, uh, the, the font is changed and, and you have it in the middle in, in a different format. You're not uh, using your outer edges. It's, it's in a centered format. Now you look through your Old Testaments Look through the prophets, major prophets and minor prophets, and notice how often the 
printing is indented rather than this. And you see again uh, that the prophets in an ecstatic state are using uh, poetry as, as their style. Any thoughts or questions? All right. So uh, in the Psalter, we have a lot of categories of different kinds of psalms, and I'm going to try to hit a great deal of them as we go through this course together. We have lament psalms. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Forever? Psalm 13. Praise? Oh, praise God in his sanctuary, in his noble acts. Psalm 150. Thanksgiving. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is gracious. Psalm 136. Then there's an odd category of kingship psalms. Did you notice in Psalm 61 that I used as an opening prayer, it addressed the king of Israel in the midst of that? So that is uh, a, a psalm that would fall into this kingship category. My heart overflows with a good matter. I speak the things which I have made concerning the king. Psalm 45. And then another category which kind of connects this more closely with Proverbs, and that's the wisdom category of Psalms. So as uh, the Psalm of Moses, uh, Psalm 90 says, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. There's quite a few psalms that fit in each of these categories. We could probably talk about some other categories, too. It depends how much you want to start dissecting uh, them all. But that's basically uh, the main categories that we will want to talk about. So let's jump right in. Now, here's what I'm talking about. If you can read this, good. If you can't, lots of seats up here. <laughs> let's look at Psalm 1 together. Blessed is the man that hath not walked in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stood in the way of sinners, and hath not sat in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law will he exercise himself day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the waterside that will bring forth his fruit in a due season. His leaf also shall not wither, and look, whatsoever he doeth, it shall prosper. As for the ungodly, it's not so with them, for they are like the chaff which the wind scattereth away from the face of the earth. Therefore the ungodly shall not be able to stand in the judgment. Neither the sinners in the congregation of the righteous, but the Lord knows the way of the righteous, and the way of the ungodly shall perish. Psalm 1, one of the wisdom psalms that we just talked about. I've listed some of the other wisdom psalms. You see quite a few of them there. Now, this is the first psalm in the Psalter. If you are putting together 150 psalms or songs or hymns, if you wish, why would you make this one the first one? This sets off and starts us on a whole 150 uh, collection pathway, if you will, journey through the psalms, if you will, 
Why is this one first? Let's look at it again. What strikes you here that might make this a good way to introduce 150 songs? The Lord knoweth the way. Pay attention. Pay attention, yeah. To what? Righteousness. To righteousness, yeah. The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, the righteous ones. Anything else you can think of? Whoops, that was already part two. Here's part one. What else strikes you? Details. What a good reader and a good student would be. Okay, I'm going to have to ask you all to speak louder. I have tried twice to use hearing aids, and I've had to give them back both times, and my hearing isn't good. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. about it in more detail. First of all, it starts out with that famous word, blessed. Asher is the Hebrew word for that, and it's best translated, how happy. But happy is a funny word in English. Are you happy? People ask me now and then, all I want is for my children to be happy, or they, they tell me that. And I wonder, what, what does that mean? Is that really what I would wish for my children, that they be happy? <laughs> well, what does happy mean for you? Uh, is there a difference between being blessed and being blessed and being happy in the biblical sense of the term? Well, let's look at what... Uh, the word asher comes from. It comes, it's based on yet another Hebrew word, ashar, which means to be straight, to be level, to be prosperous. Not dealing with emotions at all. So the idea when we read the word blessed in the Bible doesn't really mean happy in our 21st century American concept of that word. It means to be straight, to be level. And therefore, because we're straight and level, we can be prosperous. Let me suggest, this is me, not any other source, to be blessed is to be what you were created to be. What keeps us from experiencing life in all its fullness? 
Is it not our sin? What if we didn't sin at all? Well, then we would be what we were created to be. We would be like Adam and Eve before the fall. It's what our future is in the life to come when God finally, after all this time, gets us back to what Eden was in the first place. A beautiful place of perfection and utter innocence. To be what you were created to be. And we fight that. I fight that. I all the time am pushing to go in directions that God doesn't seem to want to bless. And sometimes I find out later in life, gee, I'm glad I didn't get that because because of what God put me through, I got this instead. And I'm a far better man for that than I would have been in my foolishness looking for this first thing. To be what we were created to be. That's rich. That's rich. To be blessed means, first of all, our communication with God is in the open and clear. It means the unique person that God has made each one of us has the freedom to develop and make its contribution to the church and to the world unhindered by our own foolishness and blindness. To be blessed means we have that feeling of knowing that we are not interfering with what God made us to be and what we, in fact, will be finally in a completed state in the life to come. Blessed. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Well, we all know the word counsel, taking advice from, the idea there. So thus, if you're walking in the counsel of the wicked, it means you're spending time with the, win, the wicked. You're walking along with them, all right? You're, you're keeping pace with them. But when you're walking like that, it's fairly easy to decide I've had enough of this and walk off and go maybe in a more healthful, uh, more righteous direction. I like this quote. It's better to walk alone than, to, than a crowd going in the wrong direction. All right. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. Uh-oh. He stopped walking now. He's standing. All right. Not so easy to walk away when you're standing there. That's an indication of maybe spending more time. Uh, stands in the way. The Greek, or not the... The Hebrew term here is derek, which means a road. But the Hebrew has a lot of meanings. It can also mean the course of a life or the mode of action. So you see the richness that is in that word. Nor stands in the course of life of sinners. Nor stands with sinners in their mode of action. All right, that's worse. Things aren't getting any better here. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, oh, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Sits to settle yourself. 
Perhaps it even has the idea uh, you might recall that in ancient Israel, if there was a judgment to be made, the judges would sit right outside the gates of the walled village and people would come to them and the judge would uh, mediate their, their problems that they might have. If you are one who is uh, mocking the things of God and you're one of those sitting at the gate, what kind of guidance are you going to give to other people? If you're simply a parent who's not only walking and standing, but you're sitting in the seat of scoffers, what influence are you going to have on your family and, and your friends? So we see here what the psalmist is giving us is the downward slippery slope. And the farther you go, the more slippery it gets. Or you might call it from bad to worse. Walking in the counsel of the ungodly, standing in the way of sinners, and then sitting in the seat of scoffers. Basil the Great, back in the 4th century, says this. The seat here refers to steady and lasting persistence in the choice of evil. This we must guard against because the practice of constantly occupying ourselves with sins engenders in our soul a certain condition that can scarcely be removed, is hard to heal, or may be incurable, as custom is changed into nature. And then Jerome, in the same period says this first we enter first we entertain a sinful thought then after we have reflected upon it we convert that thought into action when we commit sin moreover we multiply sin by teaching others to do what we have done what an insight so many times when we sin ourselves it's not just us who are sinning and offending God. We're setting a bad example. We're putting other people in a worse situation. So there's a second sin. It's not just the sin that you did, but it's what you're doing to your brothers and sisters and pulling them down. And what did Jesus say? It is better that you have a millstone tied to your neck and thrown into the, what was it, the lake or the sea or something like that, than that you should, uh, forget the exact term, uh, that you should bring down one of my little ones. Yeah. Well, that's just verse one. <laughs> verse two. But his delight. Again, to be what you were called to be uh, is a delight. And the Hebrew word has the idea of bending toward that which makes sense. There's something magnetic about things that delight you. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he will exercise himself. I love the language in, in our Psalter that we have in our Book of Common Prayer uh, from the Cloverdale Bible. Uh, and in his law, he will exercise himself. Uh, most translations say meditate. And in his law, he will meditate. The Jerusalem Bible, one of the earlier Catholic Bibles, uses the word murmur. I like that too. And in his law, he will murmur day and night. 
It's always on your mind. You're always thinking, how, 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 does, this, how does this situation affect uh, what God would have me to do? To develop in ourselves the kind of discipline where we find ourselves asking that question, I wish I was there. Maybe you are. I'm working on it. But what about this person? Uh, he's going to be like a tree planted by the waterside that will bring forth his fruit in due season. A couple things here. In due season. The fruit of your life comes about in due season. At the proper time. When might that proper time be? Could be tomorrow. It could be 30 years from now. <laughs> but in due season, in God's own good time, we'll be like a tree planted by the waterside. Uh, we'll bring forth the proper fruit God desires from us at that time. In God's time. Not my time. I'm working Perhaps on it. not your time on this earth. Uh, yeah. Well, we are promised that we will bring the fruit in due season. So uh, that's a good point. That's a good point that you could be in the life to come. Yeah. I, I can't say no. I always have thought of that as something that uh, God develops in us for the benefit of others here on this planet. But maybe not. Yeah. Now notice this picture. It's a typical picture of... Uh, uh, of a watering system in ancient Israel. And one of the commentators had an interesting insight. Uh, I always pictured the tree planted by some river, you know, a beautiful setting. But it could be that what the psalmist had in mind, I'm not sure how many big rivers David and others actually saw in their life. The Jordan wasn't much of a river for a lot of times of the year, and, and it was the best best they had in terms of a river but the irrigation system so you might think that it's a little less picturesque and beautiful but it could well be the psalmist had in mind a tree that was planted by the irrigation systems that they would set up to bring the water to where their their farmland was just a different way to look at it and he shall be like a tree planted by the waterside that will bring forth his fruit in due season his leaf also shall not wither. And look, whatsoever he does, it shall prosper. Well, the roots are one source of nourishment for a tree. The leaves are another source of nourishment. And that's what the psalmist is talking about. Strength, again, to be what you were created to be. is coming from a rich varied, uh, variety of places for those who walk in the right way. We're getting nourishment from the roots and from the leaves. And again, because you have healthy leaves, you're providing shade for other people. You're providing rest and comfort for others. So just as our evil can spill over and make other people's lives more difficult, maybe even cause them to sin as well and tempt them to sin, when we are allowing God to have his way, when we are being truly blessed, then uh, the benefit is not just for us either, but for others who dwell 
with us in one way or another. All right, the contrast continues. As for the ungodly, it's not so with them, but they're like the chaff, which the wind scattereth away from the face of the earth. Now, I found this interesting. I know the word threshing, I know the word chaff, and I know the word winnowing, but it wasn't really clear in my head. You guys probably know this already, but I didn't know that. The process in ancient times is the same as it is today. You cut down your wheat, and then, as you see, you've got to get bundles of it in hand, and you've got to beat the daylights out of it so that the top part of the grain, where the grain is, uh, is knocked off. All right? That's threshing. And I immediately thought of our expression, that boy needs a good thrashing. Because thrashing comes from threshing. It's the same idea. A child needs a beating. <laughs> All right, so what you've got then is the grain mixed with the other stuff that has fallen off. And that other stuff is called the chaff. You then throw it up in the air and the wind blows away all the chaff because the grain is heavier. And the grain falls to the ground and the wind blows the chaff away. So the ungodly are like the chaff, which the wind scattereth away from the face of the earth. So what are the characteristics of chaff? Lightweight. Lightweight. Yeah. Unusable. Unusable. Yeah, they don't try to save it. They just let the wind take it away somewhere. No substance. No substance. You're describing the ungodly. And you're describing yourself. And I'm describing myself at our less than model moments when we ourselves are ungodly. We become useless. We become unsubstantial. And it's a shame. Finally, therefore, the ungodly shall not be able to stand. And the word stand here is the Hebrew word kum which doesn't mean to stand like I'm doing right now. It means to abide, to endure. Uh, so often the scriptures tell us, uh, who shall stand before the presence of the Lord? And what they're really saying is, who can endure it? So the ungodly shall not be able to stand, to endure in the judgment. Neither the sinners in the congregation of the righteous judgment. Um, they might be able to stand in the judgment. It's important to keep in mind that judgment for us too often has, uh, if we're not really thinking about it, a negative kind of meaning, doesn't it? Don't you judge me. All right. And yet, um, if we sue somebody, if we've been hurt in some way and we go to court, we're looking forward to a judgment. And so often in the Bible, that's really uh, how the term judgment is used. Uh, they know a judgment is coming. It's not going to be good for the unrighteous, but for those who love God. In the Psalms, we see it all the time. They're looking forward to judgment. Psalm 43, 1, give sentence with me. Some versions actually say, judge me, O God, and defend my cause against the ungodly people. I just picked one psalm. I could have picked 10 more. 
that say the same thing. Judgment is something the Jew longed for. Think about all the time the Jewish nation was under domination by some uh, problem or another. But the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous. The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous. As you probably know, when you run into the word know in the Bible, it doesn't mean to have an acquaintance with. It's much more intense than that. To know is the Hebrew word yada, has many implications, but it often implies a deep, intimate knowledge. Look at Genesis 4.4. And Adam knew his wife. It didn't mean he got to know her better. It means that she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Or look at the scene in Matthew 6 of, of the judgment. Many will say in that day, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. He's talking to them. Sure, he knows who they are, head knowledge, but there's no intimacy there. They're not of his flock. They're not one of his children. He doesn't really know them in that intimate sense. So what does he say? Away from me, you evildoers, you chaff. Well, there's Psalm 1 and some insights into what we can find there. And as I think about all those things, it strikes me as a pretty good psalm to start the whole collection of psalms. Any thoughts, any questions, insights from your angle? The uh, Orthodox number of the psalms go 151, and I don't know why that is. Either divide up the psalm differently than we do, or throw in an actual one. The Catholic Bible is different from the Protestant Bible in that regard as well. Yeah, uh, some of the psalms appear to be double psalms that some people count as one, and, and others just count as two. The Orthodox, they operate because it was translated out of the Septuagint, and they divide Psalm 10 into 10 and 11. So okay, there it is. They divide it down. Tim, in the Protestant Bible, was very long, and uh, they just divided down to 10 and 11. So that's why there's 151 Psalms in Orthodox scriptures. Thank you. In the Hebrew Bible, in the Masoretic text, you'll find the same thing. When you're going to find Psalm 82, it's actually 83 or 81, or I forget which way it goes. And sometimes it doesn't quite line up just right. Remember, when the Psalms were put together, it wasn't done with chapter and verse as neatly as what we have today. So editors had some different ways of doing it. I really like what you said about the word blessed. I've never thought, I didn't know the translation from Hebrew had anything to do with straight. Yeah. We should first bring to mind the, the way is straight, the gate is narrow, as Jesus yes. says, it's a straight way, which doesn't suggest happiness. It suggests direction, right? It may be that your straight path will lead you right into trouble and then out of trouble at the end, but in order to keep the path, 
you have to walk right through the valley of the shadow of death or something like that. I'm not against happiness, but I'm not big on it either. So <laughs> I like the idea of blessed means I know exactly where I'm going. It's not going to be great for a little while, but by the end, there's going to be fruitfulness. Uh, that, that calls to my mind uh, St. Paul and, and the book of Philippians. Where is Paul when he writes the book of Philippians? He's in jail. Yeah. Uh, which book of the New Testament talks the most about rejoicing? Philippians. It's amazing in that short book the number of times Paul says to rejoice. Is Paul happy? I don't think he's happy in prison. But he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be <laughs> and I think that's that's what Christians can hope for and what we should work for. And that means again to seek seek the proper way uh, and to not impose our ideas on, on God, God's ways. Because God keeps reminding us, my ways are not your ways. Uh, nor are my thoughts your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than yours. So uh, we shouldn't be surprised if, in spite of our best efforts, God is taking us somewhere else. <laughs> matter of fact, I, some of you have heard me say it. Uh, my motto in life, because it's been true all my life, is uh, life is what happens to you while well, God is making other plans. <laughs> well, it is. Or somebody, sometimes folks say, we make our plans, and God laughs. And <laughs> proposes, God disposes. Yep, yep, lots of expressions for the same thing. But that, that's not easy for us, because we don't see it that way. We, we don't see anything good coming out. Walking in the way takes an immense amount of self-confidence, and of trying your best to go in one direction, and yet being content when the direction we thought was the best way to go just isn't open to us. And we find ourselves shunned in somewhere else. <coughs> Anything else from someone? All right, well, let's look at another very famous psalm, and that's 100. All right, let's do this this way. I'm going to say the top line. And when you see the stars, this is right out of our Book of Common Prayer. Um, you say the line where the asterisk is. So we're going to have a dialogue among ourselves, a conversation within the verse. We'll talk why that's an interesting thing to do in a minute. You ready? Can you read it? Oh, be joyful in the Lord, all ye lands. Be ye sure that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Go your way, the way again, go your way into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him, and see good of his name. For the Lord is gracious. His mercy is everlasting. Oh, be joyful in the Lord, all ye lands. What can we learn from that first phrase? 
joyful in the Lord. It's a command. It's a command. Not if you feel like it. This is what you are to do. Say, <laughs> there it is again. Yeah, to what degree are we willing to submit ourselves to and, and have trust in and confidence in, in what God is doing in our lives, even if we're not happy about it? Yeah. Anything else? And God is not a sectarian. All ye lands. All ye lands. Mm -hmm. Everybody. Yep. All ye nations. It could say as well. Uh, I don't know. I should check it out and see. It might even be that word goyim at that point, the non-Jews. Robert? I see an invitation there. Since this was written by probably David, and he's given an invitation to the nations to come. You know, I mean, it's like a precursor of the gospel going out. Evangelism. Yeah, evangelism. Come on, you Gentiles, let's praise God. You know? Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, Gene? Yeah, it's, I can't help but think of that. There's a situation, actually, one of the translations is shout to the Lord. Yes, yes. Which doesn't sound anything like being joyful, but shouting. Uh-huh. And I was at a national conference of my denomination, and the speaker, the guest speaker, was trying to get us to shout. <laughs> We're Canadians. <laughs> we don't shout. And he said, okay, everybody, shout. And all kind of went, <laughs> absolutely absolutely so it's not just the Presbyterians who are the frozen chosen is that what you're talking <laughs> what can we learn from this verse it's a command it's not a suggestion it's universal all lands nations of the earth and that reminds me again, Presbyterian that I, I was about to say Presbyterian that I am, but it's Presbyterian that I was now. The first of the uh, questions from the Westminster Confession of Faith, many of you know it, it's solid gold. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We often forget that part of this Presbyterian because we often think of Presbyterians as being so dour and serious and not shouting and so forth, frozen. But uh, the insight here is that we're here to glorify God, and we can do that in a lot of ways, but we're also to enjoy him. And when we walk in the right way, we can be content and in that sense enjoy God's, even when... Um, we're not giggly and happy about it. Serve the Lord with gladness and come before his presence with a song. Why? Why should I do that? Well, the psalmist answers the question. Be ye sure that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. Says some translations. Talk about differences in translations. It is he that hath made us, and we are his. We don't own ourselves, do we? It's God who made us, and God, by right of being our creator, uh, owns us. Lock, stock, and barrel. Uh, that's why. 
That's why we come before his presence with a song, because we have the security of knowing that we are made by God and God takes care of that which he was made. And we can't take much credit for any of it along the way because we're his and we didn't do it ourselves. We are his people, and then he spells it out in more detail. We're his people and the sheep of his pasture. All sorts of scriptures come to mind for this. Uh, Isaiah, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Be ye sure that the Lord, he is God. Isaiah 43. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, I have summoned you by name. You are mine. There is a a motet, a piece of music that J.S. Bach wrote based on this Isaiah passage of scripture. And my sister uh, uh, likes it too. And and she, she comments very much about the very last phrase in big block chords. You are mine. It ends with this fist pounding kind of statement in those final chords. Um, Now, if you're of the rebellious type, you don't want to hear that. This isn't good American language here, is it? Because Americans are individualist. Who owns you? I own you. And I own my body too, by the way, which rings a lot that we've been hearing these days. But that's not what it says here. God created us. Uh, we are his. And that's what the psalm says. First uh, Corinthians 6. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So go your way. Here's the word way again. And we've already talked about the way that we should be going and the way we should not be going. Go your way into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Then again, the word thankful comes up. Be thankful unto him and speak good of his name. What do you do in life when you want to go here and it sure seems important to you that you go here, but you hit roadblock after roadblock after roadblock and you end up going over here. What does the psalm say you should do? Thank you, Lord, for all the roadblocks that I have experienced over the last five years. And now I see where I have to go this way. Thank you. I'm not there yet. (laughs) Are you? (laughs) Remember my motto. Life is what happens to you while you were making other plans. That's very disturbing. I love Psalm 50. I think it's funny. Nobody else seems to see the humor in it. But here's God saying, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I think that's a riot. Nobody else ever laughs when I say it. Every time I read that in the Bible, I kind of chuckle. (laughs) If I were hungry, says God, I wouldn't tell you about it. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? 
Sacrifice thank offerings to God. That's what God wants. He wants our thanksgiving. Not when it's easy to be thankful, but specifically when it's not easy to be thankful because that's the godly way. And it's a narrow road, as I think somebody mentioned here, and few there are that find it. Finishing up Psalm 100, for the Lord is gracious. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth from generation to generation. Father Paul, do you remember the definition of grace and graciousness that uh, you say is in the Anglican tradition that uh, you, you talked about in the Confirmation class? Sure. Grace is essentially the life of God. He's sharing, when, he, when you receive grace, he's sharing his life with you. And so when you, when you receive the grace of the sacraments, he's basically sharing his life with you so that he dwells in you and you dwell in him. Sometimes grace is defined as, uh, uh, what is it? Unmerited favor or receiving that which yeah. you did not Unmerited deserve. favor is the so, phrase that uh, I always grew up with. Yeah. Right, it's more of a transactional definition. Like, uh, Bank error in your favor, receive $100, don't deserve God anywhere. But uh, the, the more sacramental idea is he, he's essentially sharing his life with you. You're receiving the grace of God in that way. So. Although I must say, we don't deserve that, do we? No, yeah, that's not, that's, but, but it's, not, it's not just a, a benefit that he tosses over to you and you catch and run away. Yeah, yeah. You don't catch it. He's sharing himself with you. So. Okay. Well, that's the Lord. The Lord is that, what he, what he just said. And his mercy, it's everlasting. I'm sure glad. How about you? And his truth endureth from generation to generation. <laughs> well, it's funny the things that pop into your head. When I was in graduate school, it was at Southern Methodist University, Perkins School of Theology. I was getting a master's degree in church music, and it was done through the School of Theology. Not the most conservative seminary in the world. And I remember my theology teacher one day, he was staring out the window and said, you know, God doesn't know what color socks you're going to put on tomorrow. And I thought, oh, yeah, it does. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't, I didn't buy that, but uh, uh, that, that's, that's our solid ground, that the truth endureth from generation to generation. So, more reasons to make a joyful noise. He's gracious. What if he were bad? What if God were capricious, given to sudden, unaccountable changes in behavior? kind of a world would that be? What would our condition be? He's merciful. What if he was only just? What if we got what we deserved? He's eternally truthful. Ultimate reality. Utterly dependable. Hmm. Now I'm thinking about my... I, my days in my master's degree to program in Texas. And I remember one day it occurred to me, it, it seems kind of obvious to me now, but I, I was, again, I was, I was the one staring out a window at this time. 
And I was thinking, God's word is the only thing I know of in the whole universe that is absolutely solid and true. Anywhere else I step, I don't know, I could slip, I could fall through, it could lead me in a wrong direction. I, I, I've got to build my life on what's revealed in God's word because I don't know where else to stand, where I'm safe. That seems kind of obvious to say it, but it kind of hit me with a new power that day. And that's a true statement, I believe, because his truth endures from generation to generation. And I've been standing there in that little island ever since. Seems like a little island compared to everything going on in the world today. Well, this is a good place to stop because we're going to head in some different directions next week and talk about the nature of the Psalms. But I see we have five minutes left. So, yes. Well, how would you categorize Psalm 100? Is it a kingdom psalm? Is it a... Uh, a song, psalm of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Yeah. Give thanks unto him and bless his name. You could call it praise, too. You know, it, it's definitely a psalm of praise. You know, I, I don't get too dogmatic about psalm having to be just in one category. Yeah. We'll probably get to this, and we've already talked about it a little bit. 150 or 151. Is this a significant number in some way where there are 170 psalms and they cut 20 out and they want to have, you know, when they're... Uh, yeah. Well, I have no reason to think that the only uh, sacred poetry that the entire Jewish nation ever came up with in all of their centuries of existence was 150 poems. That doesn't make sense. So it's clear that the scribes took a certain number of them. Uh, psalms, uh, psalms that were used in the temple, later psalms that were done in, in the Sunday school, or <laughs> Sunday school, in the synagogue. Uh, and we think that it was after the Babylonian captivity, maybe, maybe, where the Psalms started to get crystallized. Um, I don't know, maybe some of you do, whether the 150 Psalms were complete the way we know them now uh, at the time of Jesus. In the uh, different numbers of the Psalms, does the, does the text change, or if you disregarded the Psalm numbers one five whatever. If you read text right through, it would be the same. The same as when? The ego, uh, you know, the yeah. orthodox or the yeah. Catholic. Well, if we want to believe that the Psalms are inspired scripture, then we need to be careful about saying somebody changed something somewhere along the line. I think, as I understand it, it was just a matter of organization. Um, the further answer what Prophet Paul was saying, we're going to see that the Bible, the Psalms, are divided into five books that kind of parallel with the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And there may have been some early lectionaries going on there that assigned a certain number of Psalms with the first of Genesis and then the next set to go with Exodus, etc. But in most of your Bibles, you will see at various points where it says book two book three. And we'll talk about that here in class. Uh, so that, that comes down to us from very ancient times. Um, but as to exactly uh, within those sections, 
how they divided things up. That, that's more than I know. It may be in the liturgical cycle or something like that. Like if there are two ways to read the Psalms for uh, saying your offices in the Anglican tradition, and one of them is to follow the lectionary and the other, you'll notice when you see your Psalms, it will say morning prayer, day 17. In other words, if you were to follow the days and the morning evening prayer, you'd read through all 150 Psalms every month. Every month you'd read through them all. Maybe that there was 150 divided into five books to coincide with seasons or something like that. I don't know. Well, there's monasteries where they get through the Psalter every week. Every week, yeah. So, yeah. Great. Uh, anything else before we close? Thank you for putting this. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. Thank you.